I'd like to continue where we left off with the theme of intimacy as practice. I hope how the term is being used is becoming clearer. Can you hear me in the back? Is the mic working? In discussing conditions like loneliness, and as mentioned, you could include whatever you want instead of loneliness. Excuse me. I hope we saw that. the energy that can be saved by not escaping from loneliness. That is a tremendous amount of energy is used up in all the ways in which we struggle with the states that we don't want to be with. We have ingenious ways of avoiding, denying, explaining away, etc. Escaping. The energy that is dissipated in the movement away from what is if it's in this case a sense of isolation. If that energy isn't wasted, it can be used and brought into focus, aggregated, collected, brought together so that it can be directed at the loneliness. So we have tremendous energy available to us if we're willing to Uh, forego some of the usual habitual patterns that we have of dealing with discomfort. And that's a radical change in the way in which we approach life. And that's what we're doing here uh, over and over and over again in small ways and when you deal with some of these very highly charged states, not so small. But to understand something, you have to get close to it. You have to spend time with it. If you want to get to know someone, you have to spend time with them. You have to draw close so that understanding itself comes from this, from intimacy. Understanding as is used here is not intellectual. It's not thinking understanding. It's a, a, a discerning, a discernment that comes from uh, close contact finally becoming one with that which you're trying to understand. And intimacy also meant the disappearance of the subject-object dichotomy. If you recall, uh, it was said that observation as we're using it is not pulling back to a distance and looking at what's happening from far away, but actually to fully participate, to fully be sensitive to what is happening to you, only there's awakeness in the midst of that participation. 
wakefulness in the midst of it. To begin with, it usually does feel separate. So if you feel that, well, I don't know, I hear what he says, but I feel as if I'm a meditator or I'm meditating on whatever it is or I feel very much like there's an observer doing this or a witness separate from what you're looking at. I understand. Uh, It's probably inescapable that we start that way. Even with the anapanasati, with the full awareness of breathing, uh, there are 16 contemplations that the Buddha lists. They're, they're, they, come to get, they, they belong together and they work together in a systematic and coherent way. But three and four, well, let's say one, two, three and four, have to do with the beginnings of the in-breath, getting to know the in-breath and the out-breath. Uh, and one measure of those contemplations being mastered is when the mind, the breath, and the body come together. They're, they're, they're one. They come together as one. And this happens naturally as you practice. Some of you may have experienced it already. It happens when it happens. And you can't force it. Okay. And we were talking about things as they are. Ajahn Buddhadasa, who Narayan and I spent some time with in Thailand, who died some months ago, very great Thai forest master. Uh, in Thailand, uh, many, many lay people always want these talismans to hang around their neck for good luck. There isn't really a huge amount of meditation going on among the lay people. And they always want to hang these things that are blessed by monks around their neck to take care of them. Uh, and he said that he often has said more unkind things than this, but this time uh, what he said was if, if they would write, that's the way it is on the talisman, that would probably, that might help them if it reminded them. And so a lot of what we're doing is that, isn't it? We, we keep reminding you and uh, we're your talisman. Uh, over and over again, that that's the way it is. So many of your questions have to do with, well, um, I've been here five days. It should be calmer on day five or whatever day this is, seven or nine, 200. I don't know what day it is. Uh, Then yesterday, because I've been here longer. Yeah, it should be, right? But is it? No. (laughs) I should be happier right now because I've, It would be nice if uh, almost anything, right? <laughs> but it turns out that it's this way, and it and it has to be this way. It's absolutely no. It's there's no wiggle. There's no wiggle room. It's got to be this way, and it keeps doing that over and over and over again. Uh, some, uh, some questions came up in some of the interviews and I thought they were very good uh, issues that were brought up and that perhaps it's on other people's minds. One was, uh, it sounds, uh, let's get to a, a less complicated one first. 
about this in order to. That is, uh, so much of what we do is uh, in order to. We do this in order to, to get that. We wash our face in order to get clean. And then one person said, and you're all saying we practice shamatha in order to get insight, in order to develop, to get ready to do vipassana. Isn't that dualistic? Isn't that in order to? Yes, the way we said it. But uh, here's what that means. Actually, when you let's start with something much easier. We do wash our face in order to get clean. But if in the process of washing your face, you're not in the process of washing your face, then that isn't practice. You'll just have a clean face, but there'll be no development of consciousness. So you'll be a, a clean, deluded person. <laughs> so the way in which we get to something Everything is both a means and an end simultaneously. It's like people who travel, go on trips, and are fixated on the destination. I can't wait till I get to Rome or Bombay or wherever it is. In the meantime, days can go by before you get there. And we all know that the art of travel really is to take it moment by moment. And it's, it's, everything is like that. So in that sense, when you're practicing shamatha, these are after all language, you know, conventions to talk about something, when we isolate or single out the breathing and we focus on it, at that moment, uh, that's your life. Your life is sitting and being sensitive to the breath. Whatever we encounter, that's our life in the moment. And what, the, what our practice is concerned about is the quality of that moment. Are we alive in that moment so that it's true that as shamatha develops, as the mind becomes more calm and steady, that definitely uh, makes it easier to look deeply, to look more deeply, vipassana. But the way you get to that is not by trying to get to that, or as a corner of your mind would be taken up with where you're trying to get to, but actually to fully experience each in-breath and out-breath. So it's not really a contradiction. It's both a means and an end. Everything is. And certainly, at least the way we uh, practice, I uh, hope that's clear. Another issue that came up, which is a little uh, not as easy to um, describe, but I think once you get it, you'll see, to explain, once you see what, I, what we mean. Uh, one person said, well, isn't this fatalistic? You keep talking, this is the way it is. That's the way it is. You know, what is? Uh, it sounds just very passive and fatalistic. Uh, and they went on. This person was pretty good. And uh, <laughs> uh, to make it a caricature of what they were saying, it would sound as if what we were saying, if it were true, that what we're saying is passive and fatalistic, then an excellent yogi, an outstanding yogi, would be someone like this. Be someone who sits in this hall, who's meditating, one of you, one of us, sitting here meditating, and suddenly the building catches fire. And the way it is, is you start feeling warmer. (laughs) And then warm becomes hot. And the way it is, you start sweating. 
and the way it is the roof starts to cave in and the way it is people are running out screaming and you're looking at them and saying, what's wrong with them? Don't they know the meditation instructions? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, being in the moment is, uh, le- is, leads to more intelligent action. That is, if you're really in the moment, you'd be the first one out of here. <laughs> It's intelligence. That's what we're trying to say. We're, we're not tapping uh, a, an immense field of intelligence as we go deeply and directly into our experience. And what we trust more are thoughts that come from memory, from the past, uh, especially if they're nicely phrased. And the radical change is to begin to turn to our ordinary experience and to be, begin to see that it's our ordinary experiences is bottomless, fathomless, it's immense and very rich. You could say infinite. Okay, so that's some of what, that's uh, now we're, let's say, bring it up to, to now. Let me use some more examples to make sure that what we, that the term intimacy makes sense to you. We'll start with some simple ones and get, then get to a few that uh, may be a little surprising to you. I don't know. Let's take nature. Uh, a few people were concerned about that. Uh, does this practice mean you can't enjoy nature? Of course you can enjoy nature even more. Um, it would be something like this. That is, can, let's say, trees or even inanimate objects teach us anything? Can they provide us with joy? We already know they can. Uh, they can, especially if the mind is quiet and we're not uh, putting levels of interpretation, naming, and explanation between us and the tree and the rock and the flower and the goose. <laughs> <laughs> If you don't, didn't get it, that means you've never gone around the loop. <laughs> we know who didn't go around the loop now. You haven't been getting enough exercise. Uh, if, if you look at a tree, uh, and you can use the breathing, try it sometimes. Let's say you're taking a walk and something catches your fancy. Um, whatever it is, it's okay. Stop. Uh, become mindful of it, but see if you can meet it with total innocence, innocence. That is, if you are with the breathing as you look, the breath will help cut down on a lot of thinking. And if you can see it not even as tree or plant, or if you know the, the name, then it gets worse. You know, there's just, uh, just for what it is, just uh, directly and immediately commune with it. We've all had our moments of that. You know, often nature does it to us. That's why we love to be in the midst of nature. It kind of, we don't have to work so hard. It does a lot of the meditation for us. Suddenly we're, we drop all of our worries and cares and conjecture about the future and the burden of the past and we're just in nature. It's lovely. And then soon the mind starts in again. This reminds me of Acapulco and the sunset there was not as nice as the one here, but... <laughs> And then we're back in the same, it's dead again. The mind is alive and interesting, but we're, now it's not intimate as, we, as that term is being used. 
or music. Some of you are quite involved in music. When you get home, not now, not here. Uh, see if you can listen to music as pure sound. That would be intimate. Pure sound would mean you can tell the difference between all the associations that you have about a piece of music. Let's say where you heard the concert and who you were with when you heard it and how much you like it and different performances and by different orchestras and so forth. Uh, the mind will come up with that, as you know. But if you can see that and let it go, then you just come to pure sound and you'd be hearing it each time for the first time. It's very different. It's very rich. Let's get to two other examples. Uh, one having to do with weather. And another having to do with grieving. We'll start with the one with weather first. There's a koan in Chinese Zen, which has been uh, giving me immense pleasure and I've learned so much from it. I've worked with it a lot and those of you who are from Cambridge know I teach it a lot. Maybe too much for you, but it's, it's something that the more you reflect on it, it takes you deeper and deeper. It's a very... Uh, I don't know if it's so well known, but the koan goes something like this. These koans, for those who are very new to this, are stories that come out of uh, Buddhist history and are used for teaching purposes. A monk goes up to a teacher and says, how do you practice when it's very hot and when it's very cold? Um, In Asia, at least in many of the monasteries, in many monasteries, they intentionally don't bring in modern conveniences. Uh, so that in the summer it's very hot and in the winter it can be quite cold. In Korea and Japan it was freezing when we practiced there. And they didn't do a whole lot to correct that, some. Um, But, you know, you don't have to to go there. We're so preoccupied with the weather, just this recent winter. Or just think about it, this winter and just in the past. This is part of all of our experience. Uh, This whole, this obsession with the weather, the, the weather people. Uh, with their smiles and their, you know, all these new visual aids, you know, that come in. <laughs> when it's sunny, let's say if there's sunny, nice day coming, uh, it's like they say it, that it, they're so happy and we're so happy, they're like, just jump for joy. <laughs> you know, it's going to be a beautiful day and it's going to be sunny and we just want to fall off our chairs with happiness. <laughs> But if it's going to snow, it sounds as if World War III has been declared. <laughs> you know, and the language is all just incredible crisis. And uh, I don't know, bring in the paratroops and the Marines and uh, just awful. And we talk about it a lot in those terms. So this monk asks the teacher, how do you practice when it's very hot and very cold? And over the years, this koan has gone through many generations of... Uh, answers and responses and commentaries and commentaries on commentaries and commentaries on commentaries on commentaries. But one that I, that I think might be helpful is, one answer is, hot kills, cold kills. What? Okay, I'm going to answer it for you so you don't have to work, you know, work too hard. Uh, 
what, what this is getting at uh, is how to not be killed by hot and how to not be killed by cold. Actually, our whole practice is to learn how not to be killed, how to not get killed by anything. Okay. What it means is, if you're thinking when it's hot, you're, you're killed. It's the thinking that kills you. If you're intimate with whatever that hot is, not the word hot, and not all of your ideas and attitudes and memories and comparisons and uh, future hopes and all the rest of it, you're just hot. And you're at one with the hot, with the sweat, with whatever it is, uh, then you've saved yourself. You haven't been killed. It's the thinking that's extra. Something that's added to the situation about what's happening to you. Same with cold. And so another answer when someone said, "I, I don't know what you mean, some generations later, a teacher said, uh, hot Buddha, cold Buddha. And all that means is, if it's hot, the Buddha sits and sweats. If it's cold, the Buddha sits and shivers. What else is he going to do? He's <laughs> a human being like us. But, presumably, the Buddha is just hot. He's just cold. He's just sweating. He's just shivering. But us, we have this whole long story that we make up about it and it becomes an incredible catastrophe. And that's how hot kills us or cold kills us. Extend that to pretty much anything. If you make hot that way, then you, then you get killed or cold. Uh, there's a Cambodian monk, who, uh, a delightful, wonderful teacher who comes here and who comes to Cambridge, Mahagosananda. Some of you may have read, he often talks about food and he says, food kills. And he means it in the same way. That is, we have so much thinking about, kill, about food, we're not intimate with food. He said, uh, so that we get killed by food one way or another. And you know, all the incredible mind states that we have around food, which result in eating too much, not enough, in between, struggling, changing, all the rest of it. And of course, what he's getting at is, when you're hungry, eat. Period. <laughs> and when you're filled up, when you have enough, stop. Okay, so otherwise, food is killing you, and by extension, almost anything else. Um, so that's a, a use of, of intimacy here, where uh, thoughts don't separate us from our experience, whatever that experience is. I just thought of a, another koan, which I haven't thought of in uh, almost 20 years. This was um, a series of, uh, you come in sometimes, some of the koans, there's very simple probes, questions. And this one was, the whole world is on fire, what can you do? And I think it was for months, I would come in with different answers and the teachers just ring the bell, too much thinking, and that, out. (laughs) You're no good. Uh, And finally, one day, the teacher said, uh, the whole world is on fire. What can you do? And without any hesitation, I just went, Yeah! What else are you going to do? <laughs> the whole world is on fire. It's just totally be on fire. Okay, you may think that's a little far-fetched. Or, well, wait till you get to the next one. Okay. <laughs> it's uh, entering into life wholly, fully wholeheartedly, 100%, with wakefulness. It's not being uh, submerged in it, which we already know how to do. It's not that. 
Okay, the next example. I hope we get to the uh, this sutta, this teaching of the Buddha on uh, solitude, which really has a lot to say about intimacy, but we may not get it to it tonight. But we'll get to it before the retreat ends, maybe. Um, <laughs> Maybe if I say it, we'll definitely do it. The Bade Karata Sutta, we'll definitely do it. Um, when I was in Korea, there was a, a, a time when a nun died. And when that happens, the whole monastery comes out to the funeral. All the, uh, uh, the monks come down from the top of the mountain. The nuns are on another side of the mountain. We all converge. There's chanting. Uh, the body is cremated. And I was sitting next to a, a Korean Zen master who, a uh, very well-known one in Korea. And he starts sobbing. I mean, unembarrassed. No embarrassment at all. Oh, just really sobbing. And, and I felt incredibly embarrassed for him. Uh, this was 20 years ago, so give me a break when you see how naive I was. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the reason I was embarrassed is because mainly what I knew of Zen came from Alan Watts, uh, a kind of paperback Zen where somehow, I don't know, Zen masters were uh, some kind of mythical, they weren't, any, they weren't human beings, they just, no matter what happened, they were just uh, no problem. Uh, and here I'm sitting next to someone who a highly esteemed Zen master and he just was completely uh, wailing away, just really with sorrow. So I felt very uncomfortable and confused by it. So I arranged to have an interview with him. And when I asked him about it, he just roared with laughter at my, at my naivete. Uh, and what he said was, this nun and I have known each other a long time. We, start, we ordained at a similar time uh, and I'm, I will miss her. And so I just completely uh, was grieving, 100% grieving. Uh, and then it's over. The storm is over and now I'm free to just keep living. Okay. I think sometimes we have uh, kind of simple-minded notions as to what dharma behavior is or dharmic behavior is. Uh, somehow it's very pristine and uh, there's no messiness in it. Uh, I don't think it has to do with real people. Somehow if we meditate long enough... Uh, well, we'll get to the next one. Let's see what you think of it. Years later, many years later, I had a teacher from Thailand, Thai forest tradition, and uh, I asked him about death too, about his, his reaction to death. And he uh, explained to me that he had a very close relationship with his own teacher for many, many years, uh, who he loved dearly. His name was, uh, it's not important, a, f- a famous teacher in, in Thailand. And... He said very often he would, fe- he would worry about what we, how he would feel when his teacher would die. He would get frightened. He'd become anxious. And he was so close. He served his teacher for many years. He said, but then his practice developed and he matured and deepened. And the time came when his teacher did die. And he said that he had total serenity. And there was deep love at the same time. He said that the understanding that everything that arises passes away uh, was so deep now that he understood, of course, his, his uh, teacher had to die and that the love was there and there was no, nothing like, nothing like the first teacher that I just described. So being from Brooklyn and being a troublemaker, 
I said, well, I don't know. This Zen master told me that when someone died for him, and I was with, I saw him, he just really expressed himself. People from Missouri and from Brooklyn, they've got to be shown. They just don't trust and they keep poking around. Now, what he said was, he listened very carefully and I described just what I told you about the first teacher's experience and that he just 100% grieved and then it was over. And he said, well, he tried to be kind, but it was what he was saying was, uh, when his understanding, if his understanding were a little bit deeper, it wouldn't be necessary for him to do that. That's what he was implying. Now, I, again, being from Brooklyn, frankly, trust the first one more. Now, that doesn't mean it's true. I don't really know. I don't see how I can possibly know. But, it's, but I think it's of interest to us. That is, it's conceivable to me that, that uh, both are, both, what both said is true. I don't see one as superior to the other, although it may be. But now, putting it in the context of our practice, which is what's really important, My doubts were, uh, there's a tremendous amount of culture that gets involved in everything, including how you deal with, some, with death. And it's, to me, it was conceivable that the second teacher had some repression there, that he wasn't fully in touch with certain things. Now, that doesn't, I don't mean that, that, that I felt that or I think I'm right and he's wrong. Not at all. It's just that I'm careful before I get romantic about... Uh, uh, these kind of Hollywood endings uh, in Dharma circles where everyone gets enlightened and everyone just smiles and all the rest of it. Uh, it's conceivable that uh, culturally one person uh, authentically grieves in one way and one person authentically grieves in the other way and one is not superior to the other at all. Uh, there are temperamental differences, personal differences, there are uh, all kinds of probably differences we can't even conceive of. For our purposes, though, if we would set up an ideal, and I think it does get done very, very much in, in spiritual circles, in Dharma circles, uh, there's all these ideals as to what a good yogi is, and then we try to live up to it, that somehow uh, it would be superior to grieve by not grieving, you know, by just being serene, uh, and understanding that just like a leaf falls, uh, this person you love is gone. Your mother is gone, your father is gone, your husband, wife, child, etc. Uh, that could be just what we're not talking about. That could be where thinking separates us from ourselves and that we don't really know fully, uh, we're not in touch with what's happening. I think in the West, we've given that a lot of attention uh, the many ways in which we deny what's happening to us and the way in which we're not in touch with our feelings. But finally, for me, you, you have to make up your own mind. Uh, for me, what I feel most comfortable with is uh, to not have an ideal at all. I guess it, except possibly there's another ideal, which is for each person to be truest to their experience so that if what comes up is sorrow about the loss of someone, then to fully experience that sorrow uh, without thought tampering with it, without thought qualifying it, without thought cooking it, as we've been using that term. It's to experience the, the pain in a raw way while fully being awake as you do it. And if it turns out that that isn't so and that you're much more in the direction of the 
the second master, then that would be authentic for you so that it would be totally an individual matter as to what's most true for you in that given moment. To me, that is uh, the healthiest attitude for all practice. For example, um, let's assume you have a deep opening, a deep awakening, a deep enlightenment experience. That's something that happens at a certain point in time. And I remember again with the same teacher, the one who, uh, with, with the eating that I told you about the other day, eating Korean food. Uh, I would be sitting in on his interviews in Korea and there would be a translator there because I don't speak Korean. At any rate, someone comes in, came in one time and very uh, joyous and happily announced that uh, he had had an enlightenment experience and described it to this teacher. And the teacher listened very respectfully and very carefully. And then in a very kindly, friendly, warm way said, can you show me this enlightenment right now? And the person just fell apart. It was like the air let out of a balloon, just sort of like, because that experience was over. So that enlightenment can be uh, ignorance if, we, if it's something that's in the past and we attach to it. So that's why the teaching of always being in the present moment is going to be true if you're, this is your first retreat. You just kind of walked in the door to keep warm or something. <laughs> you have, you've never heard of the word, any of these things we're talking about. Or if you're uh, someone who's been practicing for 10, 15 or 20 years, how could it ever be otherwise? Because all there is is the present moment. It's always going to keep being that way. What I'd like to do uh, next time, I'd like to lay the groundwork for it. One is that we will discuss this uh, uh, Sermon of the Buddha uh, from the Majjhima Nikaya. Uh, on its uh, translated, it would be something like uh, the love of ideal solitude. Uh, and it's uh, the Buddha on what it means to be in solitude. It's uh, a little bit different, perhaps, than uh, what you're thinking. Um, I'd also like to come at this. Is there anything else that can help us um, really appreciate the present moment so that we are more likely to give it our full attention and our full care and not separate from the present moment in all the ways in which we do? And I'd like to uh, uh, briefly discuss uh, awareness of the interrelatedness of everything as one way in which one way in which that can help us. And the other is uh, to introduce you to the contemplation of death, death awareness, Maranasati. It's a very uh, hallowed Buddhist meditation practice since the time of the Buddha, considered extremely important. We don't do much of it in this country. I think we haven't wanted to. I think it's changing. And it's a way of contemplating death, your own death, of course, uh, so that uh, part of the benefit that comes from that is that it enhances the value of life so that you see how precious life is.
And that's coming at what we're doing from a somewhat different direction, not the just the mindfulness of what's happening, but uh, in a sense auxiliary approaches which enable us to so value everything that we'll be more inclined to have respect for what happens. No matter how small it may seem, no matter how routine the object or situation might be. For example, I'll leave you with this. Who's more valuable? Let's say uh, Michael, Narayan, and myself in our extraordinary, wonderful teaching? <laughs> or toilet paper? <laughs> okay, now, if, if we all checked out for about five days, I mean, you might not like it, but it'd be okay. You know what to do. We've given you enough instructions. But what if we ran out of toilet paper? <laughs> I think it would be a test of values. <laughs> and you begin to see that, wow, toilet paper is fantastic. <laughs> and there are a lot of things like that. So maybe you can already warm up to that one. Um, <laughs> yeah. okay. I don't mean just that. Um, can we have a few moments of silence, please? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.